Welcome to the Church at Rocky Peaks Downloadable Messages. This week, Lead Pastor Mike Yearly continues his three-part series entitled, A Fresh Look at the Ancient Church. And today he'll bring us the second message of this series entitled, The Metaphors of the Movement. Well, today we're continuing the series that we started last week called Doing Life Together. And it's a fresh look at the ancient church. And really the whole point of this series, is just a three-week series, is to prepare us for the launch of life groups to say, well, what are we really shooting for? What does it mean to be a church? Uh, as we go and move into the fall together, what is this all about? Now, if you were here last week, we talked about the opening day of the ancient church. We went back to Acts chapter 2. And we, we uh, looked at some of the uh, kind of what happened that day as the DNA of Jesus was downloaded into these followers of Jesus. We looked at some of the priorities and the instincts that emerged right away of what it meant to do life together. Well, today we're, the second message is called the metaphors of the movement. And you know, every movement has its metaphors, its word pictures, uh, its analogies that help us to understand what that movement is all about. For example, uh, let's see if that one ring, rings a bell. Back in 1963, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. goes up onto the uh, Lincoln Memorial and he gives a speech. And he's it's, it's starting kind of this, uh, in the midst of the civil rights movement. And he said, I have a dream. dream, right? So that's the metaphor, the movement, that this was about a dream he had. Um, some of you uh, may remember back in the 30s, um, our country was going through the Great Depression. A president came into power, FDR, and he had a plan to get us out of the Depression. It was called the New, the New Deal, right? Now, LBJ comes along in the 60s. You may not remember this one. It didn't, you know, not all metaphors hit it well. But uh, he had a vision for our country. It was called the New see, Society. Yeah, yeah, that one didn't fly so well. Um, Ronald Reagan comes to power in the 1980s, and he says, you know, the problem is the Soviet Union, they are the evil empire, right? So you see what happens is that every time a significant movement launches, it, it develops certain metaphors that help us understand what are the priorities, what is this all about, what's this, what's this vision about? Well, the amazing thing is in the New Testament, God selects some metaphors to describe this movement we call the church. And if you look at the metaphors, you get a, a, kind of some insight into the movement, like what it's all about. And today we're going to be looking at several of those in the book of Ephesians. Um, the book of Ephesians is all about the church, one of its major topics. And there's several metaphors the Apostle Paul gives us to help us understand what does it mean to do life together. And so I'd like you to take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time in chapter 1. Most of our time today will be at the, the second half of chapter 2. But the first metaphor comes in chapter 1. And I just want to pick up on it real quickly, and then we'll, we'll move into chapter 2. Paul's writing, verse 22, and he says, And God placed all things under his feet. Now, who's the his? Okay, whatever. Um, <laughs> okay, let's try it again. Um, do you have a clue? Who's, whose feet? He's placed all things under his feet. Yeah, Jesus, Christ. Yes, right. Good. <laughs> so great. It's like, hey, we're in church. Maybe it's Jesus. Yeah, that's right. Okay. <laughs> um, you know, okay, so God has placed all things in the universe, in other words, under his feet and appointed him to be head. Now, here comes our first metaphor. He's the head over everything for the church. He's the head of the church, which is his body. 
So you might want to underline those two words, head and body. Here's the first metaphor of the movement. Jesus is the head, we're his body. We'll come back to that one later on. Then he goes into chapter 2 and he says, well, what kind of people, Paul says, what kind of people make up this new movement that God is starting on planet Earth? And he says, well, you know, it's really just people like you and I, people who are once far from God, people that were even enemies of God, that God reached out to, drew to himself in love, and he gave us a new plan for our lives, and he saved us, not because of anything we did, because we deserved it, but just because of he loved us. And so that's the first half of chapter 2. Then we come to the second half of chapter 2, which goes from verses 11 through 22. And that's what we're going to be focusing on today. And I've got to warn you, it's a very difficult passage of Scripture. There's some passages of Scripture, very easy, you read it, you get it. There's other ones you really have to work at. This is one you're going to have to work at, okay? So I'm warning you. This is, you know, if you're, if you're re- reading the weekend view, I'd put it down right now. And uh, you can pick it up in a few minutes. But... I want you to really focus in here, okay? You got your Bibles? Now, before we jump in, let me, uh, let me give you an overview. Here's what Paul's going to be telling us. He's, he's talking to a church there at Ephesus and the churches around there that are mostly made up of non-Jewish believers. They're made up of Gentile believers. And he's reminding them what life was like before they came to Christ. Now, they hadn't grown up in Jewish homes, so they'd never read the Bible. They didn't know the stories of creation. They didn't know the story of Moses and the Red Sea. They didn't know the story of King David and the the starting of the nation. They didn't know about the prophets. They were, in Paul's words, they were far from God without uh, without God and without hope. He said they were far from God. And he says, but it's amazing now, through Jesus Christ, you who were far from God have been brought close to God through Christ. And you Jewish believers, you've come to, to believe in Christ. You've come out of a Jewish background. You are like close to God. You've, you've come to Christ. And so now God is doing this new community where he's bringing people who are far from God, Gentiles, people who are near to God, Jews, together in one new movement. It's a new thing. There's been this uh, strict separation before. God's up to something new in this new movement. And he says, you know what? This was part of God's plan from the beginning of time. The separation between Jew and Gentile was a temporary separation until the time Jesus would come and reunite us all in one new movement. So let's look at that. Chapter 2 and verse 11. He says, Therefore, remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth. So he's writing to Gentiles in this church. And you were called the uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision. Now, you may remember that when Abraham, when God called Abraham to launch the Jewish race, he gave them a very special sign of their unique relationship. It was a sign of circumcision. Now, I'm not sure how Abraham felt about that. Um, you can almost imagine the conversation. You know, you got any other signs? Um, you know, Noah got the rainbow. You know, Gideon got the fleece. Um, you know, Moses got to throw down his rod and it becomes a snake. Um, any other options? But that was a sign, the sign of circumcision. Every Jewish male child, eight years old, I mean, eight, eight years old, eight days old. Good thing it wasn't eight years old. <laughs> eight days old um, would be circumcised. And so that 
we'll put this wall, it's like Jews, non-Jews, you know. So he says in verse uh, 12, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ. Remember, Christ is the Greek word for Messiah. So he's saying, remember, at that time you were separate from the Messiah. You were excluded from citizenship in Israel. In fact, you were foreigners to the covenants of the promise, all the promises God made in the Old Testament. You are, here's our phrase, you are without hope, you are without God in the world. And that's really what happens before we come to Jesus, isn't it? That we're all without hope, we're all without God in the world. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were, who were far away, you Gentiles, you've been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two, the two Jews and Gentiles, who's made the two one, has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Do you remember um, years ago when the, in, in Berlin there was this, the wall, this, the separated East Berlin from West Berlin, the, the Great Wall, and uh, and so it separated the the free world from the communist world. It was a dividing wall of hostility that ran through that country. And you remember when the wall came down, and so you could travel back and forth and. Germany could be reunited. Well, Paul says, historically, there has been a spiritual Berlin Wall between the Jews and the non-Jews, you see. And he said that that wall was there. Well, what was that law made up of? It was basically made up of all the Jewish laws. He says in verse 15 that he took down that wall by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. You see, in the Old Testament, God gave Israel all these laws, over 600 laws, moral laws, ceremonial laws, how to do your sacrifices and holy days and all that. There were civil laws, how to run your government, all these laws. And these laws, Paul says, part of the reason was it was to put a barrier between the Jewish nation and the rest of the world. It was to kind of cordon them off, to separate them. Now, why? Why would God want to separate off the Jewish nation, from the rest of the world. Very simple. Because he needed a safe environment to bring the Messiah through. Now see, the whole point of it wasn't to separate them off forever. The whole point was to bring a Messiah. And after Jesus came and died, there was no need for those laws anymore. And now God could create a new movement. Or Jews and Gentiles together, one new family. And so when Jesus died, we don't need all those ceremonial laws anymore, do we? Because Jesus is our new high priest, and we don't need all those things. And so Jesus broke down that spiritual Berlin wall that separated the Jews from the Gentiles. Now, he says in verse 15 that God's purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, the Jews and the Gentiles, thus making peace. And in this one body, through through Christ, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. So he came, Jesus came, and he preached peace to you who are far away, that'd be the Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, that'd be the Jews. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Today, it doesn't matter if you're Jewish or you're Gentile, it doesn't matter. We all come to God the same way through Jesus. We all receive the same Holy Spirit that gives us access to the Father. We're still, you know, all one family. Consequently, verse 19, you are no longer foreigners, you Gentiles. You're no longer outsiders and aliens, 
but now you're fellow citizens with God's people. And he begins to throw out some metaphors of the movement here. His first metaphor is citizens. He said, you were once foreigners, outsiders, aliens. Now you are full-on citizens of a new country with God's people. The next one, look there in verse 19, you're members of God's household. So the second metaphor here is the metaphor of family. You're, you're part of God's family. The third metaphor is a metaphor of a temple. He says you've been built, uh, you've been, you, you've been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets or the ground level with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone of this new building. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises up to be a holy temple in the Lord. So see that three metaphors, citizens, family, and temple. And verse 22, and in him, you too are being built together. So you, you, this church here at Ephesus, this is true of here, the church here at Rocky Peak too. In him, you too, Rocky Peak, you're being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. You see, it's the third, third metaphor. Now, here's what I want to do today. We want to, we want to take some time and talk about these metaphors. If you look on your note sheet, there's a section there that says two metaphors of the movement, but it's actually going to be three. So if you cross out the two, this is sort of like the nine laws, the 10 laws, the 11 laws. Uh, cross out the two, write in three. We're going to look at three metaphors of the movement. The first two are there for you on your note sheet. The third one, you're going to have to write it in. I'm telling you early in the message, you can get up for that, okay? Number one. So let's look at these three metaphors. What's God's intention? This new community that he thought up from all eternity, that this new movement that he wanted to launch, how does he describe that? What are the metaphors he uses to say, this is what it means to be part of this movement? Number one. First, first metaphor we saw was the body of Christ. And we saw this back in chapter 1 and verse uh, 21, 22, I think it was, where he said that you are the body of Christ. He's the head, we're the body. You remember that? We, we got that, okay. Now, what it means is that we're called to be the hands and feet of Jesus. That's what this metaphor is all about. Now, let's talk about this. If you've been a Christian a long time, this whole idea of calling the church the body of Christ is nothing new to you. To you. We, we, we do it all the time, right? We always talk about the body of Christ. In fact, if you're really new at all this Christianity stuff, you're just checking it out, um, this might seem kind of strange for you because we'll say things like, welcome to the body here at Rocky Peak. And you're like, body? Where's the body? You know, it's kind of scary. But we're, we're very common with it. But the, there's a danger in Christian circles. We get really familiar with an analogy or a metaphor. We sometimes miss the whole point of the metaphor. But for example, like what is this all about? This body of Christ. Well, what it means is that there is a unique spiritual connection, a direct spiritual connection between Jesus and his people. Now, it's, like a, it's like an online connection. You know how you go online on the internet? You're, you're now connected to the network. There's like a network connection between Jesus, who's like the server, and between us at the stations, you see? And it's the real deal. It's not just a way of speaking. It's, it's the way it really is. In the same way that my head and my body are connected, we share a common life. So Jesus is connected with you and I when we become Christians in such a way that our bodies actually become an extension of him. 
Your physical body becomes an extension of Christ. You become the hands and feet of Jesus. You are how Christ works in this world today. There's an interesting passage in 1 Corinthians 6. We won't look at it now. I just want to do a little sidebar here for a second. This is why sexual purity is so important in the body of Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says, listen, you Christians now, you can't go have sex with a prostitute. He says, and here's why. He explains it. He says, when a, when a person becomes a Christian, the Holy Spirit comes into their life. He is now, or she is now, has one spirit with the Lord. They share the common spirit. He said, but when you have sex with someone, the two become one flesh, right? There's a connection there. He says, so here's what happens. When you, who are connected to Jesus, have sex with a prostitute, you are connecting Jesus to this process, you see? You're taking Jesus with you into the sexual sin. That's why it's such a big deal. You see, there's a connection between us and Jesus, where our bodies become an extension of him, and which is why in Romans chapter 12 it says we're to present our bodies as living sacrifices. See? Now, this is not just a metaphor. This is, the, this is a reality. You know, one of my favorite authors, as you know, is C.S. Lewis, uh, the famous Oxford uh, professor, Don, um, who wrote so many great books, and one of his books was Mere Christianity. He describes this reality, and I put this quote there for you on your note sheet. He says, when Christians say that the Christ life is in them, they don't mean something mental or moral. When they speak of being in Christ or Christ being in them, this is not simply a way of saying they're thinking about Christ or they're copying him. They mean that Christ is actually operating through them, that the whole mass of Christians are the physical organism through which Christ acts, that we are his fingers and muscles, the cells of his body. You see? That we are an extension of Jesus in the world today. We're his hands and feet. Now, this, of course, is important wherever we go, in our businesses, in the, the community, the Little League field, whatever, that we are taking Christ to that place. We are to be doing what Jesus would be doing if he were there. But it's especially important we understand this for the movement itself, for what we call the church, for the new community. Because here, the Apostle Paul goes on in Ephesians 4 to say, no, no, you've got to understand this. He says, let's, take, let's blow out this analogy. Let, let's take this metaphor and let's expand it. He says, if Christ is the head and we're the body, it's like each of us is like a part of that body. Each of us. You, you, so, so you might be an eye. I might be an ear. Someone else is a leg. Someone else is a big toe. We all have a role to play. And as we play our role, as we use our gifts, guess what? The whole body builds itself up. You see, it's like, it's like Jesus is the head. He's all together, right? The head's all together. But it's often like the church is like this shriveled little body. We got this like big head, small little body. Well, how does the body build itself up? Like bodybuilding? How does it get stronger so the body gets big so it matches the head so Jesus can carry out what he wants in this world? How does that happen? Paul says, very, he says, listen very carefully. The body builds itself up as each part does their part. As each part uses their spiritual gifts, guess what? The body builds itself up to where the head corresponds to the body and Jesus can be active in this world today. Uh, look, take, take your Bible and turn with me to Ephesians 4, just a couple chapters over, where 
Paul kind of buffs out this whole idea of the body of Christ and Christ being our head. And it's a longer passage. We won't look at the whole thing. But look at verse 15. He, said in, uh, he says, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things will grow up into him who's the head, that is Christ. He says the Christian community needs to grow up. The body needs to get stronger to match the head. From him, from Christ, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament. It grows and it builds itself up. Remember, we're talking about bodybuilding here. It builds itself up in love. Now, underline this, as each part does its work. See, how does the body of Christ grow up so it can fully be the hands and feet of Jesus? Well, each part has to do its work. You have to be doing your job. I have to be doing my job. I need you. You need me. Now, this is why I'm so passionate about small groups. I keep on giving you, here's another reason. Here's another reason why I'm so passionate. Because you have certain gifts. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have certain gifts that God has given you. But you know what? You can't really use those for the most part here in the weekend services. You're sitting here right now. You might have gifts inside of you. You might have gifts of mercy, gifts of encouragement, gifts of help, gifts of leadership. You're not really using them right now, right? You're being taught. You're being fed. That's a good thing. But you're not really using your gifts. And until you're using your gifts, Rocky Peak will never be the church it's supposed to be. You see, I need your gifts. You need my gifts. I'm using my gifts right now, okay? So this is good for me. But right now, you're just listening. We need a place for you to use your gifts, what I love about a small group is you break down the, the, the church into the small church. And guess what? There's someone in your group who's hurting and you have a gift of mercy. And guess what? You're going to flow to that need like water flowing downhill to the ocean, aren't you? You're going to see it and you're going to naturally move towards. There's someone in your group that needs help. They're going through a hard time. They're, they have to be taken to the doctor. They can't drive. And you have gift of help. And you just, you, hey, I'd love to drive you. And it's not even a chore for you. It's just, it's a joy to you. You would love to do that. And you flow to meet their needs. You're sitting here today. You have gift of leadership. But it's not really used. But you start leading a small group. And all of a sudden, you begin the gifts that God's given you to see what's going on in a group, what needs to happen in this group, what needs to happen for this group to develop. You begin to see that. You begin to use that gifts and the whole group is built up. You see? This is how it works is that in a small group, we get to use all of our gifts and the body is built up and the body becomes full to match the head. Years ago, I was in a small group. Uh, Lynn and I were in a small group. And there was a, a lady and a, a husband in there, a man, a man and wife in there, uh, probably a couple, about, I'd say about in their early 40s maybe. She was going through, they were going through some very difficult times in their life. Uh, they... She was going through a lot of physical problems in her life and uh, had a lot of major physical issues. He worked for a Christian school, and so by definition, didn't get paid very much. And so, um, so they didn't have a lot of money, and he was under huge stress at his job because the school was being really mismanaged, and it was causing a very stressful situation. And he had some physical things going on, so they were just a mess. And uh, they, they joined our group, and they were only there for one quarter, which is just going to go to show you how fast this can community can develop in, you know, say 10 weeks. They joined in. Week by week, they began to open up and share more. We began to pray for them and strengthen them and encourage them. And towards the end of the quarter, 
God put it on our hearts that wouldn't it be great if we took a collection for them behind the scenes, not to embarrass them, but just took a collection and then we were to give them some money because then we knew money was tight for them and they're having a hard time buying groceries and all. And so we did. It was a fairly young group at the time, not a lot of, you know, real wealthy people, but we had $700 that came forth from the group. And so the last night of the group, we presented a card and prayed for them. It was just a beautiful time and they cried and it was just a really neat time. But the really cool thing was the letter that came afterwards. And this letter, it really illustrates what it's like when the body of Christ starts being the body of Christ and how the whole body is built up from the experience. And I, I just want to read you some excerpts from it. Uh, they write and they say, uh, she says, Mike, uh, I, don't, uh, I don't know how to express our gratitude and appreciation to you and Lynn for your part in giving us such a generous gift. We're, we're both are so overwhelmed with the love and thoughtfulness and generosity of everyone. Sometimes I felt like I was at such a dangerous place of losing sight, not only of God and his wonderful goodness, but also of losing my faith in both miracles and the goodness and kindness of God's people. How like God to bring us such an incredible gift of love at just the right time to help, give, help me get back some of that, uh, my hope, and it helped me get back my focus where it needed to be on God and not so much on our circumstances. It also helped to remind me that God can and does and always has provided for everything we have had need of. They've been married for about 20 years at the time. It also helped to remind me that God's timing is right no matter how slow it may seem to, to be to me. It seems to me that the past few years have not only robbed me of my joy, but of my faith and my hope and somewhat of my precious relationship with Jesus Christ that I've thrived on in the past. However, little by little, all of that is being ever so quietly restored to me. I know now what God is asking of me, a total surrender of all I am and all I have to him. I guess that's why he's taking us so long with us and why it's such a very painful, difficult, and sometimes excruciatingly slow process. Sometimes I slip back into that overwhelming sense of hopeless despair. But God is not leaving me there. He keeps picking up the pieces and putting them back together again. And I find myself simply praising God in my heart and my spirit more and more each week, something that wasn't always there before our small group. Oh, how I do thank God for those last two months with everyone. I cannot begin to express the peace, the joy, and the thrill of just being able to go to the grocery store and load up with everything I need and even catch up on some overdue debt. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you again so much for all your prayers and encouragement and the love gift. We pray for God's richest blessings on your lives in every way. Isn't that beautiful? See, that's the body of Christ, isn't it? And I want you to catch this. Do you see what happened? When the body of Christ reached out and said, there's a financial need here, we need to help meet it. It wasn't just the financial need was met. Did you see how her faith came back and her hope came back? Did you see how God began to show her, I want more of your life? I want a total surrender of your life and whatever I have for you. And so it led her to a new... Do you see how the body of Christ is being built up? Do you see how the body of Christ is getting stronger and becoming so that we can express and be the hands and feet of Jesus? Well, that's the first metaphor, that we are called to be the body of Christ, the extension of Jesus in this world, especially as we serve one another in this body here at the the church. Okay, number two. The second metaphor is that we're called to be the family of God. What it means is that we're called to move past our prejudices 
Now, if you look back in chapter 2 of Ephesians, let's pick out this metaphor from the text. 2.19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, your fellow citizens with God's people. And then here it comes. And you're members of God's household. Now, this is a common metaphor that's used throughout the Old Testament, I mean the New Testament, over and over again. Um, For example, think with me. The, The New Testament really teases this one out well. It says we're the family of God. Think about it. When a, when a person comes to Christ, what happens is, is that they are born again, right? Who's the Father? God's the Father. He causes us to be born again as his children. In the little book of 1 John, the Apostle John even gets more explicit. And he says, um, actually what happens is he, say, he says that God's seed, God's sperm is placed in us, causing us to be born again. Interesting, isn't it? Very graphic. But he says it's, it's as if God's seed or sperm causes us to be born again. And so when I talk, for example, I use the phrase the DNA of Jesus. That's what I'm talking about. I'm not making it up. It's a New Testament concept that God's seed has been placed in us. And so we're born again and we have the nature of Jesus downloaded into our life. Well, you can take it one step further. This is why the New Testament calls us brothers and sisters. Why? Because you see, the, see how the metaphor is working itself out? And so in the New Testament, it comes up fairly often. Of course, we're often called children of God or sons of God, that sort of thing. Um, but it's even other places. For example, the Apostle Paul writes to the young pastor Timothy. He says, Timothy, in your ministry, when you're dealing with uh, uh, young guys your own age, he said, treat them as brothers. When you're dealing with uh, young women in your congregation, the younger women, look at them as sisters. When you're dealing with older women in the congregation, see them as mothers. When you're dealing with older men in the congregation, see them as fathers. You see see how how it's working out, that metaphor? Uh, One time Jesus was teaching, and it was a packed room, and someone said to him, hey, Jesus, your mother and your brother and your sisters, they're outside, they want to talk to you. And you remember what Jesus said? He said, who is my mother? Who is my brother? Who are my sisters? Whoever does the will of my father in heaven, that person is my mother, my brother, my sister. You see? You see how it's carrying out? And so this is a huge metaphor in the New Testament. What does it mean to be the church of Jesus? It, what, it means that we are part of the family of God. Well, what does it mean to be family? What's the mark of a good family? Well, we love one another, right? That's the mark of a great family. You love one another. And Paul says what that means in this new family is you have to move past your old prejudices. This is why we took such a long time in Ephesians chapter 2 to walk this through. The major prejudice in the early church, the biggest prejudice, was Jew and Gentile. For 1,500 years, these people had not had dinner together. There was a dividing wall of hostility. You remember when Peter has the vision in Acts chapter 10, God lowers the sheep from heaven and tells him to go and hang out with the Gentiles. Peter says, oh Lord, no, I I can't eat with Gentiles. I'm a Jew. This was a major barrier. You talk about the prejudices today in our society. This was huge. The Jews, would one of their daily prayers of a Jewish man is, thank God I'm not a Gentile. Also, thank God I'm not a woman, but that's another story. So we're going to watch God break through a bunch of these prejudices in the next couple minutes, okay? 
And so God says, no, no, no. I want to start a new movement. There's no Jew. There's no Gentile. We are one in Christ. He says, you know, it's bigger than that. All our old distinctions, they need to fade away. I'm creating a new movement. We're all one. We're all family. Take your Bibles and turn back to the left, just a few pages, to the book of Galatians. We'll see another example of this. Galatians 3 and verse 26, Paul says, You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. See the family analogy again? You're sons of God. For you who were baptized into Christ, you've clothed yourselves with Christ. Here it comes. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. That's socioeconomic differences. There's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So God has this vision for the church where old prejudices would go away. It wouldn't matter what side of the tracks you came from. It doesn't matter what your race is. It doesn't matter your religious background. It doesn't matter you're a man or a woman. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how educated you are. It doesn't matter from what part of the country you come from. Those things don't matter. God's doing something new. He's creating a new family, and he says you have to move past your old prejudices. It's one of the powerful metaphors of the movement. When I was at a, the, the former church where I was at, we started our small group program, you know, 20 years ago or more. And uh, I was over at that program. And so um, we started the first time, we started with just seven groups, very small church, about 200 people at the time. And, and so um, we needed a host for our group, and it was a very small church, and we kind of run out of hosts. And so we recruited we invited these people that were from Minnesota, which is already a cross-cultural experience. <laughs> we invited them to uh, be our hosts. And there was a young doctor and his wife, and, and we ended up becoming very close friends. But no one really knew them, and, and so you know, we, we got together with them, and we launched this, this life group. And that group had 12 to 14 people, and it was the most disparate group of people you could ever imagine. I mean, we had young and old. We had military and civilian. We had single and married. We had different races. We had different socioeconomic backgrounds, different um, educational backgrounds. We had newly married and recently divorced. And we're all together. No one knows each other. We come together after a week or two. We get together with our hosts and say, what do you think? Think this group's going to make it? I mean, we have nothing in common. And it's like, well, I was heading up the whole program. You just got to keep going, you know. And so we, we met. And it was, I can't remember if it was the end of the first quarter, the end of the second quarter. It was the last night. We were doing our evaluations. We shared communion together as we always did. And we usually would go around the group and we'd say, what's God done in your life this quarter? What's the highlight of the quarter for you? As we went around the group, one of the ladies said, I can't believe how close this group has become. I can't believe how bonded we are. We're like family. And she said, but of course, I guess you know, it's kind of obvious it would happen because we have so much in common. <laughs> and I remember like shooting a glance at our host, you know, catching each other's eye. You see, what had happened is that the church, this movement had come together. And right there in front of our eyes, we got to experience what it meant to be a family where all the old prejudices washed away, where 
being together in that group, you see, she didn't see the differences. She, she no longer could see the difference in race and education and backgrounds. and She couldn't even see it. All she could see is what we had in common. What we had in common was so huge, it filled her focus. We all have the same father. We all have the same DNA. We all have the same purpose in life. We all have the same word of God. We all love one another. You see, a church was born in that small group. God's vision. God's vision for the movement, the family of God. And here's what's so great. As we come together this fall in these life groups, we're going to learn how to do life together. And we're going to learn how to move past our prejudices. Can I tell you something? There's going to be some people in your group you just love right off the bat. They're the kind of people that you just want to get together and go to Starbucks or go fishing together or do whatever you're going to do. You're just instantly going to connect. You're going to love them. And there's going to be some other people in your group you're just kind of hoping that God calls them somewhere else. You know, they're, they're probably Christians, but do we have to live together? You know, you know what I'm saying? Uh, they're going to talk too much or they're going to be too needy. They're going to think they're the center of the universe. Or worse, they're going to think you talk too much or you're too needy, the center of the universe. They're not going to get your humor. You're going to think they're dull. And right there, God says, okay, Rocky Peak, you want to learn how to love one another? You want to learn how to be the church? You need a lab. You need a lab to learn how to love. This is your lab. And you're going to learn together how to work past your prejudices. You're going to learn that what you have in common is way more important than what separates you. I'm going to take you to a new level. I'm going to teach you how to love one another. You're going to learn how to be the family of God in these groups. Number three. There's one final metaphor. We won't spend a lot of time with it, but I want to spend a couple minutes here. And and I'll give you some time because I know you're going to have to write this out. But it goes like this. The third metaphor is that we're called to be the temple of God. And what it means, you have to write some more, what it means is that we're called to experience God together. That's what it means to be a temple, that we're called to experience God together together. Let's look back at our Bibles, Ephesians chapter 2, and let's pick out this analogy, this metaphor, <laughs> 2.21. In him, the whole, the whole building is joined together, rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. So there's our metaphor. And in him, you too, Rocky Peak, are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. That's the point of a temple, isn't it? The whole point of a temple is where God lives. This is God's territory. It's God's home. In the Old Testament, when the nation of Israel came out of Egypt, God said, I want to live in your midst. And so you got 12 tribes. I want three in the north, three in the south, three in the east, three in the west. And right in the middle, I want to live right there. And you're all living in tents, so I want a tent. We're going to call it the tabernacle. It's a very special tent. And he gave them explicit instructions of how they were to build the tabernacle. And it was one of the names for it was the tent of meeting. It was the place the nation met with God. And once they got it all built and all ready to go, God came to live in the tabernacle. His presence was so thick, you could cut it with a knife. In fact, it was so thick, the glory was so amazing, the priests had to evacuate or they would have died. The glory of God descended. Well, about 500 years later, Solomon decides to build a permanent temple for God. 
Once again, builds it exactly according to specifications. Once again, when it's done, God comes to live. God moves in. The glory is so thick, priests have to evacuate again. It was a place, the temple is a place where you meet with God. The temple is a place where God lived. The temple is a place where God manifested his presence in a unique way. The temple was a place you got to experience God together. That's what a temple's all about. Well, guess what? In the New Testament, we don't go to a temple anymore, that we are the temple. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God has come into you? You see, the Spirit of God that descended on the temple back then, now we are the temple, God has descended upon us. The Spirit has come to reside in us. So what does that mean? Well, it means that one of our callings as a church is to be a place where God shows up. You see, when God wants to give us a metaphor to understand what he's after in the church, he says, I want you to be a temple. I want you to come together, and when you come together in my name, and you're gathered around my word, and you come in my presence, I'm going to show up there, and you're going to get to experience my presence together. That's what it means to be a church. See, a church is not about a building. A church is not about coming and just learning some things and going through the motions, putting a notch on our belt, we've done our duty. It's not just about hanging out with friends. No, church is where we come together in the name of Jesus. And Jesus says, when you gather in my name, I will show up. And it's true in our weekend services, but you know something? It's also true in our small churches, in our life groups. When you come together, in a couple of weeks, you start getting together. You're going to get together for a potluck and And uh, every week you'll share what you're learning and you'll talk and you'll meet friends and you'll talk about all kinds of things and you pray together, you have dessert, you know, you go home. So you're going to do stuff in your groups. You're going to do certain hoops you're going to jump, certain things you're going to do, activities. But that's not what really makes a group a group. What's really happening is that you're going to come together week after week with your new friends in Christ And you're going to gather together there in the presence of God and you're going to say, God, what do you want to do in this group tonight or this morning? That's what it's about. God, what do you want to do? We gather in your name. Now you show up and you do what only you can do. Who do you want to heal this week? What do you want to say to us this week? Who do we need to pray for this week? How do you want us to help each other this week? You see, we gather, we build the building but then God shows up. Next week, I'm going to be talking about this, the whole message. Next week, we're going to be talking about the signature of the supernatural. You see, this movement called the church has been supernatural from day one, opening day, till this day. We gather together. It's all about God showing up and him putting his signature saying, this is of me. This church here at Rocky Peak, this is my church And the way you know it's mine is I'm signing my name. I'm signing it in the supernatural. Because when you show up together, I'm going to do stuff you can't explain any other way. I'm going to change your lives. I'm going to heal your lives. I'm going to tie you together. I'm going to change you from the inside out. I'm going to transform you. I'm going to work in your midst. It's going to be my signature that says you're my people. You see, we gather together to be the temple of God. We do it in our large group. We do it in the small group. So, three metaphors. Three metaphors of the movement. God has a dream. He wants to launch a new community. 
And he gives us some metaphors of this to understand what he's after. He says, okay, here's one. He says, it's like I'm the head and you're my body. You're going to be the people that manifest my presence in the world around and you're going to serve each other and build each other up. Okay, well, he says, let me give you another one. It's like you're my family. We're going to move past our prejudices. We're going to love one another and take care of one another. It's okay, well, here's another one. It's like you're my temple. I used to live in buildings. Now I'm going to live in you. And when you gather in my name, I'm going to show up and do what only I can do. And you're going to experience the presence of God together in your groups. Three metaphors. The metaphors of the movement. What God is after here at Rocky Peak. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much for what you're doing here. And Lord, help us as we reflect on these metaphors to really get it. To get a clear picture of what it means to be your hands and your feet. To get a picture of what it means to be your family. To get a picture of what it means to be a place where you show up. God, this world is hungry to experience your presence. May we be the people that serve as the cups and the saucers and the pots and pans that carry your presence to a thirsty world. We pray this in your name. Amen. Bill Hybels, pastor of a large church back in the the Midwest, outside of Chicago, he wrote a great little book called Courageous Leadership. And I came across this quote, and I'd like to end with it today. I'd like you to follow along. Think about God's calling on us here at Rocky Peak, where he's taking us for our future. And let this speak to you. It says, there's nothing like the local church when it's working right. Its beauty is indescribable. Its power is breathtaking. Its potential is unlimited. It comforts the grieving and heals the broken in the context of community. It builds bridges to seekers and offers truth to the confused. It provides resources for those in need and opens arms to its arms to the forgotten, the downtrodden, the disillusioned. Still to this day, the potential of the local church is almost more than I can grasp. No organization on earth is like the church. Nothing even comes close. It is the hope of the world. Isn't that great? You see, and he's given us these metaphors to help us understand it. I'm excited about what God's doing here at Rocky Peak. Each week as he's unfolding for us more of what it means to be his people. Next week, we'll be talking about the signature of the supernatural. I hope you can join us as we have one final look at the ancient church to see what the target is on the wall. What are we shooting for? This is what it's all about. This is what God intended when he started the movement. God bless you. We'll see you then.